Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm interested to get stuck into today's discussion. We've been looking forward to this for, it feels like, almost a year, and I can't believe it's July already. But we've got a really exciting and slightly different thing to chat about today, don't we? Yeah, we've been working with the National Library of Scotland, well, particularly you have, Marjorie, and their their Liston archive. Yeah, it's been such a joy to work with them across a year or various time periods on the Liston archive. So we convinced them that we should read some of it to you all and chat about it and use it as part of our materials for this month. And all our groups across Open Book will be looking at and reading some of their material, we hope. And even some of the creative writers will be responding to it, which is really exciting. So don't be worried if you feel like you don't know as much about the listings as I do. I'll fill you in on bits that I think would be useful or interesting to know as we go. But we really wanted you all to have a chance to hear part of it as well. Could you just set us up a little bit about the listings? Because to be perfectly frank, until you mentioned that you were running some workshops on the Liston Archive, I had never even heard of it. Yeah, so the Listons, it's actually the Liston Archive, but really Henrietta's writing, the wife of Sir Robert Liston, is the one who's kind of the bulk of the archive is actually about her, even though he was the diplomat. And that's because she's the wife of this diplomat in the late 1700s and 1800s. What's remarkable about her is that she kept incredibly good journals and also wrote extensive letters, some of which are slightly outrageous in terms of their detail and the history that she was writing down and she sent them all over the place but they're incredibly well kept so although the archive is about the listens I would say the bulk of it is her writing and her notes and her little bits of paper and things with her handwriting on it so the interesting information for me was really a her journals and her travel journals that she kept very carefully for every journey that she took. So I looked when I was working with the library and doing some workshops at various different periods of their life. And we're going to look at one in particular, which is their time in the Ottoman Empire. But I was really interested, for obvious reasons, in their time in the Americas. So they were only the second, they weren't called ambassadors because it was just after the war in the US, but they were the second sort of ambassadors to go over to America, the first having been ejected, I believe. And they went on the day after they got married. So they got married, I think she was in her 40s or her early 40s, no children. And then they boarded a boat and sailed across to America, which is a remarkable way to start your married life. And then she has these incredible journals, which I will encourage you all, I'm sure, in the next few minutes to go and find about meeting George Washington, meeting John Adams, meeting Alexander Hamilton, many of the characters that many of us know because of Hamilton. Um, And those journals really talk about the dawn of that country and what it was like to be there and be at dinners and be invited to dinner at the White House. And there was no White House at that time to be invited into the homes of all these characters that we we know very well from the history books. So we've asked the incredible curators at the library to pull a section for us to read today. And it's worth saying if you are interested in reading more or finding out more, it's really easy to do. You can do it in person. You can go up and make an appointment and the curators are delighted for you to do that and to take the time to show you the archive. But there's a huge amount 
print of it that is digitised and is available online on the National Library of Scotland website. So if you are interested, it is easy to find out a bit more. Yeah, and it's not just digitised. All of her travel journals are digitised, but you can see on one side of your screen, if you're looking on a computer, her original handwriting. And on the other side, there's a button to push and it'll turn it into text that we can recognise. Because if you're anything like me, it takes me forever to try and figure out or decipher the calligraphy. So it's a really easy, searchable archive to look through and and kind of read all the letters and her journals and things. But what we're going to be looking at is their time in the Ottoman Empire, which was later in their career. And we've got an excerpt from this archive on our website, which you can go and look at, but we're going to read from it today. Is there anything else we should say as a, as a start before we crack on? No, I don't think so. There's a little bit of context, isn't there, before we get into the letter that we're we're going to be talking about. Are you going to start with that? Yeah, I think so. We should say thank you to Dora Petherbridge and Patrick Hart, the two curators of this archive, for putting this together with us and giving us permission, supporting us as well in us disseminating this little bit of this archive out into the world. Okay, so this first part that I'm going to read is just an introduction to the letter that we're going to read. And they've entitled it Plague, Princes and Political Embarrass, a Constantinople letter from Henrietta Liston. And this is what the archivists have to say about it. In 1812, Henrietta Liston, botanist and diarist, traveled to the heart of the Ottoman Empire. Her husband, the venerable Scottish diplomat, Robert Liston, had been called out of retirement and reappointed British ambassador to the sublime port at Constantinople. Over almost eight years' residency there, Robert would spend his time preserving peace between Turkey and Russia and patching and palliating and endeavoring to prevent mischief, while Henrietta, as diplomat's consort, kept up, quote, a friendly intercourse with all mankind. Henrietta also kept travel journals and wrote letters which, preserved in the Liston papers at the National Library, offer a unique vision of Constantinople in the early 19th century. The extract of Henrietta's writing reproduced, which we're just about to read, is from one of the most fascinating of her surviving letters. The letter, sent from the British Embassy Palace to Edinburgh, was to Dick Ramage, the Liston's nephew, who cared for their home, Milburn Tower, while they were away. Henrietta, who had privileged access to the Ottoman elite and diplomatic corps, writes to Dick of the plague in Istanbul, of diplomatic society, and of the latest developments in international politics and the Napoleonic Wars. The letter itself has been pierced by several slits, possibly in order to, quote, lock it against unauthorized readers, but probably to fumigate or perfume it against the plague. I'm going to stop there and say I've seen this letter and it's absolutely astonishing because it's it has perforations right through it. And I think they sequestered mail that was coming into the house and then smoked it against the plague. And for me as well, when we were looking at this, it took me right back to that early stage in COVID when we were, it was suggested that our shopping should be sprayed and wiped down or be left for 48 hours before we unpacked it. And that was just a sort of almost unexpected parallel when I saw this letter. And in fact, we were due to do a workshop with the letters, this particular letter, and then we decided it was too close to the bone at first. And we waited until things had cleared a little bit before we we did it as the last workshop, partly because I felt it would be too hard on folk to be looking at the language that we're about to see. 
Um, I, I want to add here something that I know as well from my time with this archive before we start, which is that Henrietta wasn't always well received by the elite. Um, she was considered to be quite an ordinary looking woman. And because she didn't come from a particular, although, although she was quite well to do in our terms, particular kind of aristocracy, there are some letters back and forward from others talking about her at the time, calling her kind of ordinary or plain and noting that she didn't always fit in with that elite. But I think we can get a sense from the archive that she was so charming. She often brought people into her circle anyway and was very disarming. And this is late in their lives, really. They thought they were retired and had set up their retirement home and were pulled out of that to go do this particular task. So she's later in her years, and I think she probably just didn't care very much by then. Will I read the beginning of this letter? Yeah, why don't you? And we'll see what we make of it and start. So this is um, March 6th of March, 1813, Pera of Constantinople. My dear Dick, your letter of July which reached me, I think, in September or October, found us prisoners within our garden walls, and in all the horrors of apprehension, the plague having by that time completely surrounded us. Our back gate opened into a burying ground in which the graves were so numerous and so fresh that it resembled a new ploughed field. By the by, in time of health, these burying grounds are extremely interesting, but become serious evils during the plague. When I say burying grounds, I talk of every empty space in the towns and their neighborhoods. At each grave of any distinction, a stone is placed, on end, crowned with a turban which, from its form, denotes the rank of the deceased. The remainder is filled with inscription, generally passages from the Quran, and all is painted and gilded in the gayest manner. At the back of each stone, there is a cypress of a magnificence to astonish. These cypresses form beautiful groves, which are, in summer, filled with turtle doves, whose constant melancholy note accords so sweetly with the cypresses while the scene is so singularly enlivened by the painting and gilding of the turbans and inscriptions. During the plague, all this beauty, for the time, disappears. The bodies, and they often died a thousand a day, are usually placed very little below the surface of the ground, and often without coffins. Sometimes the dogs, which form one of the nuisances of the country, dig them up, and at all times the heat occasions a smell worse than disagreeable, for it carries death along with it. From this shocking scene, we retired late in October to the village of Belgrade, the Elysian fields of Lady Wortley Montague. It is, allowing for her high colouring, a very charming Greek village in the midst of an immense forest beautifully diversified with green meadows, lakes, streams, and fountains, and surrounded with wooded hills. This country is certainly the most beautiful in the world, but with a thousand inconveniences and at least an equal number of uglinesses. We walk when the weather allows it, and then often make calls, for we pay no other visits, except in summer, to Buyuk Dare, to the Russian, Spanish, Swedish and Sicilian ministers, 
from all the rest of the diplomatic corps and their friends, the war excludes us. Our house is large and charming, our garden extensive, and we begin to dress it up. The view from the top of our house, even from the windows of our drawing rooms, is well worthy of the pencil of an artist. We are out of your world, it is true, but we are in the oriental one. The posts from Persia, from Baghdad, from Smyrna, vessels from Greek and the Mediterranean islands, all less or more interest us. We are now eating honey from Athens, the produce of Mount Hamidus, but alas, no butter. To say nothing of that from Vienna, which gives very early news from Paris. Do we stop there and leave them in the countryside for a minute? Yeah. She writes with such ability to paint a scene, doesn't she? It's interesting to read aloud because it doesn't follow the way that we speak anymore. So your brain has to really read every word in a way that we probably don't or don't know that we're not doing sort of more modern text. But, you know, she does a beautiful job there of switching between um, terrible scene at home to the hills, you know, and in a way that when you're writing memoir or fiction or anything else, your reader needs a break. And here she's done it for him, hasn't she? Yeah, and I think that even in the really dark descriptions of the death and the graves and the dogs, we still get the noise of the turtle doves and the cypress trees meshed in with that writing. And it almost feels that she is, she feels a weight of responsibility to tell how bad things are, but she also recognizes that she has to make it bearable. I think she does that thing that I know I've mentioned before. We've talked about, Ada Lamone talked about at the book festival last year, which is checking work for that balance of sweetness and sorrow, that texts lose their readers when it's all misery or all too saccharine. And so I think they somehow offset each other. That image, let's just stick with their image in Constantinople of the back garden with all these gilded turbans and turtle doves. And yet it's almost more beautiful because it's sitting beside this sort of stench and misery of death. And, you know, even that description of the earth as a plowed field is a really beautiful image in the sense that it's it's horrible because we can imagine the earth and it being turned. And yet when you describe it as a plowed field, it's waiting for something, you know, fresh or new or, you know, she could have just said the earth is turned because of the graves. But when you see a plowed field, you're thinking, what's coming next? What's the next crop? There will be spring or there's something's been planted there. And I think what's interesting to me as well is how much of that sweet and sour contrast and that sort of almost creating a coating on the delivery of bad news is cultural and of the time. Because as far as I know, and and correct me if you're wrong, Marjorie, because you know so much more about it than me, she didn't have formal training as a writer. So she wouldn't have been aware of what you've just talked about and the need within a piece of written work to have these contrasts. That This is something that's either come naturally to her or is layered with the expectations and the customs of the time. And I suspect it's the latter, that, you know, that there's a bit of the stiff upper lip and we just get on with it and we're here to do a job that was, you know, cultural and of the time. Yeah, well, I was just thinking, I wonder if that's still true of the British, you know, in terms of, you know, that kind of the stiff upper lip and just kind of, you know, nothing's terrible. You know, it's all, you know, that kind of joke if you you might have your leg cut off and it, it's fine, you know, it's, we can manage. I'm just going to say if that's particularly true of diplomatic circles. 
I think so. Although I, you know, it would be easy to say that she's got to paint a picture because she's a diplomat's wife or they're in service, I would say very much together, these two. And yet when you read her letters from America, they're really interesting and they, they reveal a lot more than you might think a diplomat's wife would or a diplomat themselves would reveal. And there are um, some indications that Robert read her journals and made some amendments to them because there's some, um, I don't think that any of this is sort of provable, but I remember Dora saying that they thought that some, there were some indications or some notes that made it look like someone was looking at these and approving them and it was probably Robert. So, you know, it's interesting to, in this case, it has that kind of veneer of things are terrible and yet it's beautiful. But with the America's text, you know, she might say, so, so-and-so is a hothead or Alexander Hamilton, no surprise there, or, you know, how distressed George Washington was when Martha died. And maybe those that's just because they're earlier in her career. But I, I think she's very honest in a way in the letters that she sends back. Yeah. So I don't know whether it's Britishness. And the other option is that she just happens to be the right person in the right place. And she's a great observer. So I think she's unlike her time. And she was orphaned very young and sent to be looked after by her uncle, who was the postmaster general of Glasgow. And so she had a fairly privileged upbringing, but not one of aristocracy. And so she was very well read and very well taught. And, you know, had found herself fairly late in life. I'll know that's horrible for those of us in this day and age, I think. But, you know, in in her late 30s, without having married and had no intention of marrying, really, um, and just wanted a library. So she was a very learned woman and obviously had been very well read, which makes sense because we know in order to write well, you have to read well. So, you know, I think it's probably as much Britishness as well as us being very lucky that she was the woman in that place so that she could record it for us. And I think the breadth of her interests is what makes the journals so intriguing and so engaging because she brings to it, um, as you said, she's a very keen observer, but she brings to it her interest in botany. So you get a real sense of the nature of the place she's writing from and you know the gardens that she creates and the different locations that she finds herself as the diplomat's wife. I also get the impression she's quite interested in politics and intrigued by that. So you get a real flavour of the political nuances and chatter and gossip. I wouldn't say she's a gossipy person herself, but she recognises the interesting tidbits of gossip from the dinner party tables. And also she collected and kept items that are, for me, were incredibly interesting things like the menu from the dinner that she was invited to at uh, George Washington's house and she writes about the seating plan and who she was next to and I think you were were pointing out um, in, in one of your workshops there's a recipe for making ink that is amongst the papers so we get so much of a flavor of the time not just from her writing but from the skills that she brings yeah and also by definition what she chooses to keep that shows us what she was interested in what's remarkable about the seating plans and her descriptions of dinners is that she's sitting next to the leaders of countries and keeping the conversation so you know she's by no means a retiring quiet woman who's just the wife of a diplomat they're very much a team i think and you get this feeling even here with her talking about you know, what they're doing there and how they go away and looking, being in contact with other diplomats as well. You get a sense that she's really in the mix of it, I think. Although I want to talk a little bit before we move on about, you know, a thousand dead a day in Constantinople. You know, had we been doing this podcast years ago, we would have thought, wow, that's interesting and moved on, you know, because we had no point of reference for that. But, you know, if you think about that, 
now in the context of the pandemic and the deaths that we've gone through in this country, it's astonishing. And because we can now understand what that actually can mean, I think it's all the more powerful to understand what she was living through. And also with no sense of how they might protect themselves or the science behind it and what they were exposing themselves to. You know, and we definitely recognize that feeling of being prisoner in your own home, right? But I don't pick up a sense of fear or panic in her writing. She seems an incredibly strong and I mean yes there is the, the, the reference to prisoner and she she would of course have been worried and concerned but she, she's not there's no sense of that in her writing there's no sense of I want to come home and I'm terrified and we need to get out of here or anything like that. They weren't sure they would ever get home given that plague and, and also given their advanced years now they weren't that advanced in modern terms but you know I think they were in their 60s at this point which is quite late to be sent on to ambassadorship you know, halfway around the world when you had to take a boat. So, you know, I think there is a sense that they're not sure, they're sure it's their last posting, they're never sure they're going to get back to Britain, which is really interesting. And and they really charmed the people that they met, such that letters were written to them after they left saying the streets aren't the same without you. You know, they were really beloved by the people that they worked with and the people who worked for them as well. So I think they genuinely loved it even though they never were sure that they were going to get home, which is a really remarkable thing. I, you know, I think if you or I were stuck somewhere and not sure we were going to get home, we, I'm not sure how well we'd embrace it. You know, I think I would be focused on the fact that I wasn't sure I would ever get back to the place I felt was familiar. But in this case, you know, they seem to just jump in and not be thinking, well, we've got to get ourselves back to our retirement home. It was a kind of, well, here we are, you know, and that's, we've got a job to do, which I think is remarkable, really. And again, tells us a lot about them as people, right? And their kind of fortitude. Should we move on to the next section of the letter? Yeah, which is much more political, I think. Yeah, she changes tune a bit. Shall I read that bit? Yeah, I do. But the circumstance which has most interested and occupied us is the war betwixt Russia and France. Bonaparte's being fairly beat off the field, half his army having perished in the retreat from cold and hunger, he must now, it is probable, yield to the wish of the Emperor of Austria, whose advice is at general peace and who stands in a position to enforce it. We are not without our political embarrass here. The Turks, besides their general contempt of all Christian powers, particularly hate the Russians and fear the French. England and Austria are the only governments they at all confide in. Andreossi arrived as ambassador extraordinary soon after us. Andreossi's first orders were to prevent the peace. For that, he was as much too late as Mr Liston had been to make it. His most important step was to renew the war, and the Turks, having in truth made a very disadvantageous peace, it required some address to counteract him. Thus the summer was passed, in discontent, irritation and ill humour. This was wound up by two most atrocious executions of the Greek princes Murusis, of all which I hope the French ambassador's conscience is clear, but I would not exchange consciences with him. Yet it must be confessed that this savage and despotic nation make less account of men's heads than of anything else in their kingdom. The late wonderful successes of the Russians against the French, aided by Italiansky and Mr Liston, begin to open the eyes of the Turkish government 
and the ensuing summer must, I think, decide the fate of the world. If the French continue the war and conquer Russia, Turkey must fall, of course, and this the Sultan knows perfectly. The favourite point of Bonaparte's ambition being to be crowned Emperor of the East on the throne of the great Constantine. It is likewise known that he has sworn revenge against the Ottoman port for the malapropos peace they made and against Austria for the weak assistance she gave. Write soon and fully. Yours, most affectionately, Henrietta Liston. Before we get chatting, I should say that in the text that you can find on our website, there are a few little notes for words like embarrass, which really means embarrassment, or the malapropos, which really means inappropriate that Henrietta uses. She quite often includes the French or other words that we now think of out of use. Um, so you can find those there if you, like us, might need a little translating. I love all the details in here. I was going to say what's interesting to me is how engaged she is with the public politics and how much she knows. And as you said, you get that sense of the partnership between her and Robert Liston and the fact that he must have had these conversations and shared his thoughts on what was going on with her. I think so. I mean, it sounds like she's, you know, what we might think of as a diplomatic couple now, you know, she sounds like she's engaged in different ways, trying to keep peace with everybody and so that he can do his work about trying to also keep the peace in a different way. One fact that I didn't know until I started working a bit more with this was that there was a Russo-Turkish war that finished in 1812, partly because they were worried about Napoleon moving in. And you get that sense here that, you know, the French ambassador's job is to make everybody fight so that Napoleon can keep coming, that usual tactic of keeping people fighting so you can advance. Liston's job is to make sure everybody's in peace so that Napoleon doesn't have as much success. And that, that's a little bit of a fact that I didn't realize. And I think it kind of helps explain what she's talking about here, which is, you know, peace had already broken out in 1812 and they arrived in 1812. So the, uh, this French ambassador is a bit too late to cause trouble because it sounds like the Russian and the Turks here have worked out that they both need to join against the French. And in this, it feels a bit like Hamilton and everything else that we kind of have in our current day, right? Like all this, we need to do this against this country and we need to join forces is even just in our plays at the moment, we understand, but also in our kind of world politics. I don't know about you, but it feels modern to me. Yeah, and it, it definitely does. I mean, I think even, you know, first the plague reference and then this sort of political intrigue, the cliche of history repeating itself um, certainly seems to to shine through from this letter. But one of the things we haven't talked about and which I think comes across is Henrietta Liston has quite a wicked sense of humour and she's a wry and funny person and it's jumped out to me here was uh, the savage nation makes less account of men's heads than anything else. And then in the previous little section, there was the reference to having honey from Athens, but no butter. And I think you see examples of that dotted um, throughout the archive and her writings. It's a really wonderful mix of the incredibly big and the incredibly small. You know, we're hearing in one paragraph about effectively the Napoleon's march in and, and world peace, you know, the fate of the world relies on this or is going to be determined by this. And yet two paragraphs before she's saying we have beautiful honey and no butter and the turtle doves, you know, make this scene of devastation 
something beautiful. So it's a really beautiful mix in this sort of tiny excerpt. And it should be said that Dora, I think, or Patrick, I'm not sure which, has um, condensed this letter down. You can find the whole thing on the National Library Archive website, but are the list and papers archive, you know, has have created it. So it's not it's not necessarily that the butter comment comes in the same paragraph as the question about world peace. It isn't far, you know, the letters aren't that long. So she feels to have gotten the whole world into these sort of few words, which is remarkable to me. And I would say maybe just to sort of tie up our, our conversation about this letter that generally in open book, we would say we mostly read fiction, and this is clearly not fiction. But for me, it still retains the same storytelling lens that we were used to, more used to in open book. And although it's not fiction, for me, it, it still has that sense of, of a story and being sort of pulled into the world of someone else by reading it. I should also note that lots and lots of writers that you'll recognize have been commissioned to write on the back of this archive when they put it, they finally digitized it a year or two ago. And so if you check out on the website, there are writers like Sarah Sheridan and others who will have written other pieces and taking this as a starting place. So using it as inspiration to create new things. One of those writers who was commissioned was Heather Young, who spent time in the archive and wrote a, a series of poems and did some artistic works, cyanotype prints from her, in, taking her inspiration from the archive. And that one of Heather's poems is one we're going to read today. Yeah, so we, we've chosen her poem, Fable. And it runs in two sort of long, thin columns, really, down the page, which you won't hear because I'll be reading across them. But interestingly, you could read them one or the other. And it, it opens up for the reader all sorts of possibilities of ways to come at this, which I, I know um, will be part of Heather's purpose in doing it that way. So it has an epigraph which says, The undergrowth of the woods and the covering of uncultivated fields consist of the cystus, both red and white, of hypercums of tamarisk, with a variety of heaths. And that's from Belgrade, Ormani. Fable. Further down the green washing hangs, then common ground, oak wood, a viaduct, an old wall, stones. The air stands firm and beyond the trunks, no breeze. Remember, it is the yellow flower that heals wounds of the sword, of the heart, the white, or sometime red, that staunches the blood. It has been a long time since men hid in these woods. It was a long wait for the girl, Pecta, whose bones were here once and more than once, of whom the tale and the question. First, a corpse cries out in his dream, I am light, am sun, I will not abide that which rots beside me, I will not thole such darkness, such stench, remove it or me, let me rest in violet. Then he found her just so. She, Paraskeva, Sancta, the eyes long dry of tears, the body's embrace, 
the earth, its family long discarded. It had traveled once, heard more than once, voices, seen, returned, hid, ate, prayed by these shores, just so, and so. Did you remember the question? Or since one day the leaves will fall again and the blood will be staunched by strangers this time, and yet will the undergrowth grow, how much is it that you would give for such an asking? This is a dense poem, I think. Very much so. The form for me is really interesting as well, the way it's laid out in the page, as you mentioned, but also within the columns, quite interesting splits and breathing spaces. So I think I get the impression Heather knows that what she wants to write is something dense and she's giving, doing her best to give us the space on the page to manage that. And I mean, there are choices about where to breathe and also you could read it with gaps between the columns as well, which would change the meaning, I think. I was reading this through ahead of this podcast. I was intrigued to see how you would read it. Yeah, because I think you have to make decisions and at some points it allows that space and other times as a reader you have to cross those gaps because for sense it would it would change the meaning entirely or make it nonsensical, which also has a different thing attached to it. But for me what's really beautiful about it is about finding yourself in a voice buried or in the ground beside someone you didn't anticipate, which I think for me is what's happening in the poem. And so the form, which is these two columns, really helps. And the columns are broken up as well. So you get a four-line stanza and then a three-line stanza and then quite a long one. You know, they could almost look like a body or bones lying next to each other. And then almost in some ways coming to terms with the idea that you're beside, this isn't where you want it to be. And and the kind of almost ghost or soul crying out to be removed or moved, to ask for the person next to you to be moved because that's not what you wanted or expected or anticipated. So it raises all these big questions for me about how much choice we have, how much, how will we ever get to decide those sorts of things, particularly in the context of a plague. And I had the opportunity to read the essay that Heather wrote alongside the the group of poems that she had written. And one of the observations she makes about Henrietta Liston is that Henrietta very rarely seems to look upwards, to look to the sky or to the horizon, and that she's an incredibly observant woman. You know, when she brought back botanical species, but she's looking down or she's looking into the ground, she's rooted in the ground. And I think you get a real sense, as you said, of being buried and in the ground and, you know, not having that expanse and looking up in this writing when you know that observation that Heather has made. And I think if you think of the context of the Mediterranean, how beautiful blue the sky often is and the, you know, the horizon is, it really gives you that sense of Heather wanting to convey that sense of looking downwards and being rooted in the ground. Well, that just makes me laugh because I think, you know, as someone with family in California where it's always sunny, which sounds just wonderful and is wonderful unless you spend a lot of time there and then you get very bored of it very quickly because every day is the same and it's the same wide open blue skies with you know, the only weather to talk about is the odd storm or whatever because it just doesn't change so you know the cynic in me thinks Henrietta Liston isn't commenting on the weather because it doesn't really change when actually what's changing around her is the you know the plant life and well obviously the deaths and everything else so and partly I wonder if Heather was thinking about Henrietta and Robert not being sure about where they were going to be buried you know were they going to be buried beside 
died, someone they didn't know. And you, know, you might anticipate with lives as starry as theirs were, that you could choose your, you know, grave site and you could choose what's on your headstone and you could choose to be laid to rest beside your parents or whoever you wanted. And so maybe, you know, you might feel anxious about this idea of being laid to rest in, you know, almost an unmarked grave in a a country thousands of miles from home. So, you know, while I suspect too that the voice could be anyone of the plague, it could also be theirs, you know, a kind of deep-seated worry. And yet, I love the ending of this poem, you know, the idea that the blood is going to be staunched, that there is something that the, even the flowers, the cystus, is there's one for healing and one for staunching, and that there is the hopefulness in it. There's parts of it where we have the corpse buried in the place they didn't want to be, and that you think, oh gosh, this is this is hard. But but by the time you get to the end, there is a lightness about it. And and you know, did you remember the question? The sort of last stanza opens, almost like there's still more to come. There's still something open for us to be considering in the future. Because one day the leaves will fall again, and that strangers will staunch the blood, that no matter what happens, there is a cycle, you know, and that we'll be going through it again. Feels hopeful. Yeah, it's a beautiful and very different take on the kind of straightforwardness of Henrietta's letters and journals, which I really appreciated from Heather. And, and with it, some beautiful prints that are definitely worth looking at. Um, and you can see them online. Thank you to Heather for allowing us to read and discuss a little bit around this poem, Fable of Hers. I think that's all from us at Open Book today. We've loved having you with us. Thank you for having us in your ears. I think it's just leaving for us to say we look forward to joining you next time.